0: Good morning. Well, I hedged last week, so I guess it's really time for me to get down to the old grindstone and figure out where we are in Hebrews uh, chapter 6. We're in lesson 14, and uh, we're looking at the whole of verses 1 through 12, but specifically at verses 4 through 8, and the title, as I've changed it again, Who Are Those Who Fall Away? Let me just recap last week and what I was trying to, uh, to, to sort of put forth to you, and that is, if indeed, we believe that God is sovereign, then we surely must believe and, and he, that He is omniscient, then we must believe that He knew and anticipated what we would do, we, the church, would do with this text. And he knew the various kinds of interpretation that evangelicals would have and the agony and angst that that would be associated with it, the disagreements, the heated theological arguments, and so on, especially in college and seminary dorms. That's where the, the arguments seem to be the hottest. But the bottom line is that this text has really achieved its purpose in one sense at least, in that it has caused Christians to look at their Bibles more carefully. You can't skim this text. You have to come to terms with it. You have to wrestle with it. You have to look at the broader uh, Bible doctrine, the Bible teachings, the teachings of the the book of Hebrews, teachings outside the book of Hebrews. And so in that sense, what I was saying is the things that we are seeing, even the uneasiness that we uh, approach this book with, are those things which move us in the direction of getting serious in our study of God's Word and not just lightly passing by. But that was last week, and so I I bought a little time. I hopefully let you sweat a little bit. And I must confess, in that week I have modified my position a little bit, but uh, we'll see where that goes today and what you choose to uh, do with it. There are some prerequisites, I think, to understanding our text. And, and the first of those is that we must distinguish between Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. I don't think that the writer to the Hebrews is simply saying the same thing over again in, verse, in chapter 10 that he is saying in chapter 6. So if we look at those two warnings as being virtually the same, I think we're going to miss something that may be there. I'm going to differentiate them at least, and you'll have to see whether you agree that that differentiation is actually valid. Secondly, we need to grasp the corrupting influence of an unbeliever on the people of God. When an unbeliever works his or her way into the gathering of the saints, bad things happen. And I'm not sure sometimes that we fully appraise the, the damage that could be done by an unbeliever in the midst of believers. Thirdly, I believe we need to recognize the strong influence which the Judaizers, and I use that now in a, in a somewhat broad sense... Uh, those who were devoutly Jewish, and that may include both unbelieving Jews and devout believing Jews, but who were always pressing that Jewish element, the, the, the degree to which they had a significant influence uh, in the church and even upon the apostles. Now let's talk about some expectations. What I did this week is I set the commentaries aside, I did all my underlining, I did all that stuff, and and I set the commentaries aside and said, all right, for me to be satisfied with the interpretation of Hebrews chapter 6, I need to have several things done, And, and here is what they are. One, the interpretation must fit the flow of the of the argument of the author. It must fit in so you can see the development of the argument that the author has. Secondly, it must make sense of the pac- passage. That is, we ought to come away from the passage saying, Aha, that's what it means. And if we don't really do that, then I'm not quite sure that we've achieved what we should. Thirdly, It must be consistent with the rest of the book of Hebrews. What we find here, if we've got the right interpretation, we ought to be seeing that reiterated and repeated somehow in in the remainder of the book of Hebrews. And fourthly, it certainly ought to be truths that we find repeated also in other portions of Scripture outside of Hebrews. Fifth, and, and this is an interesting one perhaps for you, It must explain the key transition words, therefore and for. Therefore, he says in in chapter six, verse one, we will press on, and so on, if the Lord permits. And verse four, he uh, in in verse four, then he begins with the word for. How does that word for, where he now begins those difficult words of, of of our problem text, how does it fit what he has been saying? And, and often the commentaries will say, here are the problem words. Why didn't he say, however, instead of therefore? Well, I think if we understand why, then we will probably be close to the interpretation that we are supposed to arrive at. Sixth, it must explain why unbelievers are dealt with in a passage addressed to believers. Now, obviously, that, that, that makes some assumptions. But when you read this text... It sounds like, it feels like he is talking to believers ahead of time when he talks about them being immature and and, and and wanting milk instead of meat and so on. You say to yourself, these are immature Christians. When you come to the verses below, verses 9 and following, we're convinced of better things concerning you. Again, that looks like believers. If verses 4 through 8 are addressed or speaking about unbelievers then what part do they have? How do unbelievers fit into a text that is addressed to believers? That, to me, uh, is a necessary item to be answered. And it must instill confidence and encourage the saints. Well, I listened to, to, the, to the message, uh, actually uh, parts of it more than once, uh, of one of the, the, the finest preachers I know of, on this text. And I have to tell you, when I when I came to the conclusion at the end, rather than building confidence, it was like, oh you know, and, and you're saying, well, how, how, does, how does that inspire believers to be confident in their faith and to move ahead when it's almost as though you're questioning the ground on which they stand? So it has to inspire confidence and encourage the saints, because this is a word of exhortation, the writer says. So let's move to distinguishing Hebrews chapter 6 from Hebrews 10. I am not here trying to interpret Hebrews chapter 10. I'm stalling on that one as long as I can. But I I am just looking at the words of of Hebrews 6 and the words of Hebrews 10 and saying to myself, it doesn't sound the same, uh, if you'll observe with me in a couple of areas. When you look at Hebrews chapter 6, our text, it talks about them. Now, it's been saying you, 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 and, it, and, and up to verses uh, verse 4. And then at verse uh, 9, it will pick up again and talk about you. But in verses 4 through 8, it's talking about them and those and they. That's somebody else than me as I read the book. I find me and them. And the question is, who are they? When you come to Hebrews chapter 10, however, it says, If we do thus and such. Now it's not them, it's us that is being addressed. I think that's not just a subtlety. It's something that has to be addressed in one's interpretation. In Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about those who fall away. Or some translations would say apostatize. When you come to Hebrews 10, it is those who keep on or go on sinning. Now, this uh, the third ca- uh, characteristic there, rejecting Christ, they are actually scorning Christ. In fact, they are... In, 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 and there's the use of the present tense in this in the midst of a bunch of of, of tense uh, d- descriptions here. They... Uh, they belittle, they continue, they keep on crucifying Christ and, as it were, mocking Him. Boy, that's pretty active uh, uh, opposition in my book. Whereas when you read Hebrews 10, it's more not that they are rejecting grace, but they're almost presuming upon it. So it, it feels different to me in that regard. In chapter 6, they cannot be renewed again unto repentance. Those are very, very strong words. You do not find that in chapter 10. Now, you find some very troubling words in chapter 10 where it talks about terrifying judgment. But that's that's different, I think, than saying someone cannot be renewed again unto repentance. And the last thing is, I, I didn't have the word... I didn't have room on the PowerPoint. Isn't this terrible for living? But it's very interesting to me. When you look at, at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, it says they fall from the living God. They fall away from the living God. In, ch- in chapter 10, they fall into the hands of the living God. Now, maybe that makes a big difference. Maybe it doesn't. All I'm saying is... I am not going to try and handle Hebrews 10 when I handle Hebrews 6. I'm dealing with Hebrews 6 and I'll wait till I get there for all the agonies of Hebrews chapter 10. My sense is that you are talking about two different groups of people. One in in chapter 6 and another in chapter 10. We shall see. Now, recognizing the negative impact an unbeliever can have upon the saints... I was teaching a Bible study in the Gospel of John, and we were in chapter 12 with the story of uh, Mary washing the feet of our Lord Jesus and anointing his feet. Remember, with that expensive perfume she, she broke in one text, she broke the alabaster vial and poured it out on him. And and uh, I was thinking of the parallel text, and especially uh, there, there's a text that's parallel in, in, in Mark and also in the Gospel of Matthew, When you read the the account in the Gospel of Matthew, you see the same essential elements taking place. But what we are told in that text is that the disciples, as though it were all of them, all of the disciples are saying, Now wait just one minute. Here is this expensive uh, perfume, this ointment that could have been sold and, and it could have, it could have taken care of the needs of many of the poor. What a, what a senseless waste this was. So that here are all the disciples scorning this beautiful act of love and adoration of Mary. And Jesus says, uh, you guys, you better settle down on this one because this is going to be recorded and people are going to remember her and her act for a long time. And she is anointing me for my burial. Now, either that says to me she knew a whole lot more about what was coming for Jesus than they did. That wouldn't be a surprise. Or unwittingly she is preparing him for his burial. But it's, it's a wonderful story. It's not until we get to John chapter 12, however, that we see where all of this originates. Because in John chapter 12, we are told that Judas is the one who is objecting. He's the one who says, what a senseless waste. And we are told why he does so. Judas was the guy whose hand was in the bag. And he kept giving himself small business loans out of the bag. And he looked at this as his commission. So he's saying, 300 denarii, well, that's 30% for me. And in effect, when she pours it out on Jesus, Judas is saying, that's what I don't get. And, and so Judas is an unbeliever. He is a thief. And his protests are picked up by the rest of the disciples to where they are mouthing His thoughts. If I understand the text correctly, here is one unbeliever in the midst of a group of believers, and lo and behold, they're saying what he's saying. That to me is a distressing reality of the influence an unbeliever can have in the midst of believers. <coughs> Excuse me. Deuteronomy chapter 13, Old Testament text. The impact that an unbeliever can have. It says. First of all, that if there is a prophet or a dreamer, I take it that would be somebody within Israel who is claiming to be one who speaks for God with authority. If he comes along and in effect says, let's you and us go out and worship other gods, then obviously that man, we are told, needs to die. But it gets more personal. He then says, if your brother or your son or your daughter says that, they are to die. That's how serious false teaching was in the community of Israel. And then he says, if there is a distant city and you hear the rumors that somehow in that city there are those who are beginning to worship other gods, then you are to go search out that city, search out the truth, and take them out. Because of the negative impact that apostasy can have within the believing community, so an unbeliever in the midst of believers, can have devastating effects. Now, I put Deuteronomy chapter 18 there, verses 9 through 14, because in that text, it's talking about those in, in, who are of the pagan variety, you know, the soothsayers and those necromancers and, and all the hocus-pocus stuff that goes on uh, in, some, in some streets in Dallas, and you can see a whole lineup of those, the poem readers and whatever. They don't claim to be from God, but they do try to get people to follow their ways against God and they need to be dealt with. What's interesting is verse 15, in contrast to those who would lead us away from God, verse 15 says, I'm going to raise up a prophet, Moses says. God's going to raise up a prophet like me. You listen to him. So that 13 and 18 say, don't listen to them, listen to him. So an unbeliever in the midst of believers can have a devastating effect. Now recognizing the strong influence of Judaizers uh, upon the church. In Acts chapter 11, you remember, uh, Peter has gone to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. He has proclaimed the gospel. He has stayed there, so he has apparently eaten food from their table and all of that related to the sheet that was lowered down in chapter 10, kill and eat. And he says, hey, I don't touch that unclean stuff. And God says to him multiple times, whatever I call clean, don't you call unclean. So our Lord was changing the food laws. And Peter has now gone and preached the gospel. And these, these Gentiles have come to faith in the Lord Jesus. What happens when Peter gets back in town? I think some of them are his fellow apostles, but basically what happens is they say to him, what do you think you're doing taking the gospel to Gentiles? And much of chapter 11 is Peter's explanation of what is taking place. I see something coming that may be helpful to me. Thanks, John. Um, I see this explanation in chapter 11, and the conclusion is, well then... What do you know? God has chosen even to save Gentiles. Next verse. And so they went about preaching to Jews only. You know, they may have intellectually heard the message. They certainly did not get the message. And this is not amongst some, some faraway group, folks. This is a, 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 a with, the, with Peter's peers. So there's a strong influence. Acts, uh, Acts chapter 15 Remember, Paul and Barnabas come back and they give reports about how the Gentiles are coming to faith. And what do some of the uh, Jewish uh, folks say who were within the community? They say, unless they are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, they can't be saved. Pretty serious stuff. Serious enough that a council is called to deal with those issues. But my point is, these are not just small fry ...that are raising these objections or you wouldn't have had a whole big uh, uh, conference amongst the believers to decide what in the world to do. But the most distressing text comes in Galatians chapter 2. You remember where Paul is talking about what happened at Antioch. And he says that Peter and and Barnabas and a number of other Jews were there. and, And Antioch, of course, was a church that was made up of many Gentile believers... And and these Jewish believers came like Peter, and uh, they maybe they ate like we would in the in the gym, and all sat around at tables, and and they they all ate together. And I would gather uh, that they may have eaten uh, Gentile food, uh, bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich, you know, ham, whatever they that, that they were eating. The same thing to have fellowship together. When those people came down from James, it says. Then Peter began to behave himself differently, removed himself from the Gentile table, ate separately with the Jews. Barnabas was caught up in it and everybody else there of the Jewish persuasion, of that Jewish group, they did likewise. Now that suggests to me that these uh, people who came down from Jerusalem, who were uh, apparently, I think, of the Pharisees in that text who had been saved out of that group they were very separatistic and they were very influential in the church now i'm not saying that they were all unbelievers i am simply saying we need to understand how strong the influence was of the jewish community within the jewish believing congregation and that's part of what of course the author is is trying to deal with in the book of hebrews okay Let's follow the flow of the argument. And in particular, look at those transition words, uh, therefore and for. Chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, we have laid out before us the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom the Father has spoken fully and finally. He is the one, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to whom we must listen and the, the whole problem of neglect is a serious one. If we don't listen to whom the, the one through whom God has spoken with great authority, then there is, of course, great difficulty. So the sufficiency of Christ as the one who was higher than the angels, chapter 1, the one who came down and became lower than the angels, chapter 2, it is incarnation. Uh, made atonement for sins, now has gone back up into, he- into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father where he now makes intercession as our great high priest. Chapters 3 and 4 essentially talk about the deficiency of man. This goes back, uh, starting at verse 7 to Psalm 95, uh, verses 7 through 11, and looks at that first generation of Israelites and how they failed with respect To following God and entering into His rest. Those chapters say to us, it is very, it is a very serious danger that faces us and we must beware. Now, if you look with me at uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, I think you'll see that there are some, there's a very important warning that comes at verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Now that word in may be among, but it seems to me that here's what the writer is saying. There is a danger, as as I'm writing to you as a believing Jewish community... But there is a very real danger that within that community there will be those, albeit few, there are those who will have an unbelieving heart. And it appears to me that he is saying, you then are to be aggressive, encouraging one another, verse 13, day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I may be reading this wrong, but it seems to me that what it's saying is there is a danger that an apostate may be among you and that that apostate may do great damage. So you need to be alert. You need to be proactive. He doesn't push this off on their leaders. He puts this on every believer and he says, you ought to be encouraging one another. You ought to be on the lookout for apostasy and unbelief in your midst. You ought to be dealing with it because the impact of that in the church can be devastating. That's the way I understand that warning, and it seems to me that that then plays itself out as we, as we pursue uh, further into the book. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, you have those words of exhortation that are given. We are to be diligent to enter into that rest, verse 11. And then we have those Uh, words about the strength of the Word of God and its ability to discern and detect impurity and whatever in our lives and in our church. Verse uh, uh, 14, because we have such a high priest that has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast to our confession. And verse 16, let us draw near with confidence. Those are the exhortations. The two things that the author has done is talked about the Word of God that has been revealed through the Son and the work of God that has taken place through the Son. The work of God includes His atoning work at Calvary and His mediating work as our great High Priest which continues on in heaven. So we are to be reliant and responsive to His Word. We are to be dependent upon the Son in His mediatorial ministry. And given that, the author then in chapter 5 begins to embellish and to talk about how our Lord's high priestly ministry is superior to that of the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood. And he's getting into that, and now he says to us that this is a priesthood that obviously doesn't come out of Aaron's descendants, out of his physical seed, it is a priesthood that is according to the order of Melchizedek. That's where our problem comes. That's where our text reading started today when, we, when Will was reading is we have much to say about Melchizedek. We have much to say about Jesus and his higher order of priesthood, but that's the difficulty I've come upon this, uh, this important subject, and frankly, you're not really mature enough to deal well with it. So he says in, in, uh, in verses 11 through 14, they have become dull of hearing. Here's what I see that I guess I hadn't noticed really before. When you look elsewhere and you read about those who are babies in Christ... Uh, like First Peter chapter 2, as a, as a babe in Christ, we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word. Newborn Christians desire and need milk. Is that not true? These are people, though, when you, when you have milk, then you ought to be growing toward solids, so, toward meat, toward maturity. What's happening in these people is they are not making progression. They are making regression. They are worse than they were before. They have come to the point where they are dull. So there's been a process, and in effect, they're, they're getting dull and duller as, as they are moving along. Why is that? It says, instead of progress, you've regressed, and they need someone to teach. Someone needs to teach them this elementary material all over again who would that someone be? Well, the writer to the Hebrews says, it isn't going to be me. <laughs> it won't be me. You, every time you get this, it's as though you get, you get duller and duller. I'm going, to, I'm going to read a text to you later, but let me just refer to it now. In Paul's epistle, second epistle to Timothy... He talks about people who, as, as they, uh, th- that will draw to themselves as they grow, grow cold in their faith, they will draw to themselves teachers who will tell them the things that they want to hear. And it says that one of the things that will happen is that these teachers will come along and, and it, it says that they capture silly women who are burdened down with their guilt of sins. And, and I think everybody has always read that in a gender sort of way. But it seems to me... By the way, what happens in village life is the women are home. The men are out fields working. Who's left? But, but the women who are there... And what he's saying is the problem is not their gender. It's their guilt. It's their guilt and it's the teaching they're getting. And he says they are ever learning, but they are not able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why is that? A... Because I think it's guilt based, not grace based. And B, it is because of the content of the teaching they're getting. And the more they get taught, folks, the less they know. And we'll find out why that's true. But, but in my opinion, what we're looking at as the key problem is a, as a teacher problem that is happening there in the church. And that these people have been given this elementary stuff they are not moving toward maturity. In fact, it has to be repeated over and over again. And so therefore, when the writer says in, in chapter 1 of verse 6, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching, what he's saying is this is what you've been getting and that's why you've been getting skinnier and skinnier, so to speak. Therefore, I'm moving ahead. I'm going to press on to those things that lead to maturity. I'm leaving these things behind because those things have become counterproductive and largely because of those who are teaching them. That's the way I understand this whole backdrop. When you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, when Paul says, when I come to you, I couldn't speak to you mature words and so on because you were babes. He's saying, this is for my teaching. When the writer to the Hebrews says, I'm going to teach, he's contrasting his teaching with what somebody else is teaching, if I understand it correctly. So in my mind, these are apostates. These are the ones that are going to be described in verses 4 and following. And so he's going to say, I'm going to leave this behind and move ahead to maturity. Why? Because of who these people are and where they are going. When you look in the Old Testament and you see this whole question of leadership, you look for instance, remember at the event where Aaron's rod buds and you know, and the almonds come out and whatever you're saying. What that's saying is, God is saying to Israel, here's my designated leader. You better start following them and not the others. Remember when they have the rebellion and the rebels are to line up with their families and the ground opens up and swallows them? There's a little lesson for Israel. Says, so strike the scoffer and the, and the simple will learn. The Israelites saying, you know what? If I'd have been following them, I'd be dead. I don't think I ought to follow them. I think I better follow God's leadership. So I want you to notice a couple of verses here that are in our context. Uh, ver- first of all, verse 12. He says, now he's saying, I'm confident of better things concerning you. But he says, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the the promises. Not be sluggish, that's what they were. Not be dull, but be aggressive, moving forward. And they are to be imitators of those who through faith and, and, and patience inherit the promises. In effect, that's taking us to chapter 11, is it not? the hall of faith. But if you look at chapter 13 and verse 7, here's what the writer says. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. He's saying, look where their teaching and their lifestyle leads. Well, what does 4 through 8 do? (laughs) It tells us exactly where their teaching and their lifestyle leads, does it not? They are not able to be renewed to repentance. They are lost and they are doomed. And I believe he's saying to the readers, if you follow them, you're following the wrong guys and you're heading in the wrong direction. Don't listen to them. Listen to those whose lives are characterized by faith and patience and diligence, like I'm going to talk a lot about, he says, in chapter 11. And, like I'm talking about in chapter 13, verse 7, when you pick your leaders, look at their life and look where it's going and look where it leads. That ought to tell you, these are not the folks to be following. These are the ones not to be heeded. Now, let's look at some other texts, can we? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. Our text says that these people will not be able to be, be renewed unto repentance. What does that mean? Well, I would think that if you found it explained in the book of Hebrews, that would tell us. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no one be like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble. That's the thing I was talking about. Those apostates who arise within the believing community and cause all kinds of damage. And through him many become defiled. And see to it that no one becomes an immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no opportunity for repentance, though he sought for that blessing with tears. That's not being able to return, not being able to repent. Uh, And it seems to me in that context it's speaking clearly of an unbeliever. Hebrews chapter uh, 13, and uh, I can't read all of verses 1 through 17, but look look at, for instance, verse 4. Marriage must be honored among all, and the marriage bed be kept undefiled. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and it talks about those who will rise up who have denied the faith... What do they do? They belittle marriage. They don't honor marriage. They belittle it. They look at it as something to condemn. By the way, they also forbid certain foods. He's going to speak about that in chapter 13. The writer to the Hebrews will. And when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, not to mention chapter 6, in that mix, and and go back one more, chapter 5, the man who's living with his father's wife These people who have been creating a following, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, are apostles of Satan. They're false apostles, apostles of Satan. What comes in the wake of their teaching? Immorality. So anyway, here's this uh, instruction that has to do with money, uh, uh, morality, immorality, and so on. And then verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke God's message to you reflect on the outcome of their lives, and imitate their faith. Then it says, verse 9, Do not be carried away by all sorts of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by ritual meals, which have never benefited those who participated in them. What he's saying is, these people who are coming along and teaching you and moving you in the wrong direction, they're not moving in the grace direction. That's why you're not growing, because you're not growing in grace. They're talking about the old way and works and the rituals and the ceremonies and all of those things that they're trying to impose back upon believers. Do not be carried away by all sorts of strange teaching. And then look at verse... um, Eleven or Verse 10, we have an altar that those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat from for the bodies of those animals whose blood the high priest brings into the sanctuary as an offering for sin are burned up outside the camp. Therefore, to sanctify the people by his own blood, Jesus suffered outside the camp. We must go out to him then outside the camp. What camp? Well, the camp of Judaism, in the sense of the old is better, of all of that imposition of all the rites and the rituals and the legalism and whatever, that's what you have to come out from because you come to Christ who stepped outside of it. He wasn't embraced by those who held to those things. He was crucified by those who held those things. We must go outside as well. Okay, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was leaving for Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teaching, nor to occupy themselves with myths and interminable genealogies, for such things promote useless speculation rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. Some, verse 6... "...have strayed away from these and turned away to empty discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand what they are saying or the things they insist on so confidently." It seems to me that there is a strong Jewish element in the false teaching that Paul is instructing Timothy to deal with. And notice, their teachings are not only false, they are riddled with myths and genealogies and speculation... You wonder why these people who have been under the teaching of these people are not growing? And while they're getting dull in terms of hearing the things that lead to maturity, it's because it's myth, speculation, and debate. That's not the meat of God's Word to which the author is pressing on as he talks about Melchizedek. Uh, chapter Second Ch- uh, Timothy chapter 3. He talks about those who will be lovers of of themselves, lovers of money, verse 1 and 2, ungrateful, unholy, and so on. They outwardly maintain an appearance of religion. But then it says in verse 6, they insinuate themselves into households and captivate weak women who are overwhelmed with sins and led along by various passions. So they they prey upon one's uh, fleshly lusts and by one's sense of, upon one's uh, sense of overwhelming guilt, and they seek instruction, but they never are able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, and they won't be able to arrive at that if the truth indeed is not taught. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these people who are, have warped minds and are disqualified in the faith also oppose the truth. One more. Titus uh, chapter 1. There are many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those (coughs) with Jewish connections, who must be silenced because they mislead whole families by teaching for dishonest gain what ought not to be taught. My sense then is taking all of the texts of the New Testament that warn about false teaching, and particularly that which has a Jewish cast to it, that cast which says the old is better, the mystical is better than the clear and and, and, uh, uh, meat of the scripture as it relates to Christ and the New Testament. Those people are the ones who I think were leading these Hebrews to where they were not growing and in fact they were becoming more and more dull. So verses 4 through 8 are shocking because they are meant to say to us, look what these people don't believe and look where they are headed. And if we are to look at those and see the outcome of their life and we're to follow those who are examples of faith and they are persistent in the promises, it isn't going to be these folks. It's going to be those, in verse 11, who have the same diligence and therefore, um, I'm sorry, verse 12, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right, consistency with the text of Scripture. Now, how does this interpretation affirm and encourage the faith of believers? One is, it seems to me that this text makes a clear distinction between believers and unbelievers. It, It describes what believers are like and what unbelievers are like. And so rather than blurring the line and, and, and us always quivering and saying, I wonder if I'm on the right side of the line, it makes the distinction clear as to where we are. It holds believers corporately responsible. Here's, here's the thing I see. What I see in the writer to the Hebrews is his confidence and trust in the Hebrew believers. He does not say to them, let your leaders handle this. He says to them, you encourage one another. You watch out for that which is false. You cling to that which is true and and stay fast in, in those things that are right. You watch out for the kind of leaders that you are following. So it, it appears to me that when you say, when he says, I have confidence in you to do these things... Does that not give you confidence? It's like a father who goes away maybe on a, on a trip, and he's got a, a 14-year-old boy or a 16-year-old boy, and he says to him, "Son, I'm looking, I'm looking to you to watch out for your mom and to watch out for, for the rest of the family. What does that say to the boy? "My dad, trust me. Not this question of, you know, son, I, I don't think you're going <laughs> to be able to do this, you know, and raising all kinds of doubts. He has confidence in his readers. By the way, I put that parenthesis in there. Note how corporate responsibility is safer than single-leader rule. When apostates arise, the sad part of them is, in a church which has one leader, if that leader is the apostate, there's lots of trouble. When you're in a church where there is a plurality of people who are strong in their faith, strong in their understanding of Scripture then you have this, this, this corporate kind of, of strength that, is, that can withhold and, and identify and deal with those who come in from outside the faith. Safeguarding, I say, can be accomplished only as the saints are knowledgeable in the word of God. That's what this is about. How does it motivate me? It says, there are going to be those who come along who are false teachers. There are going to be those who come along whose teaching leads contrary to growth. I need to recognize that. I need to cling to the scriptures. I need to move ahead. That's motivation for me. It's not fear. And it's not guilt. We are to be strengthened, it says, by grace. About the title of this message. Who are those who fall away? They aren't Christians. They aren't Christians. As I I understand in this text. Now, again, I've said I'm separating chapter 10. We're going to deal with that. I don't know what's going to happen there. I'm not going to deal with that right now. I'm saying here in this text, it seems to me it is clear. These are not believers who have fallen away. But what a value confidence has. The author's confidence in his readers... So I was thinking about 2 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul says, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. Where is your confidence? I'm I'm stealing a little thunder on next week's message. My confidence is not in my performance. My confidence is in his promises that are made by the oath. That's what that next section is about. I am confident because God has sworn by oath what he is going to do. That's where Moses' confidence was. When the whole of Israel is worshiping the golden calf, Moses says, I understand how bad they are. It isn't about how bad they are. It's about your promise. Your covenant is what gives me assurance to deal with you and mediate in this way. Personal confidence and then corporate confidence. Paul saying to the Philippians, I am confident that He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's what this text is about. Confidence in God. Not, we try harder and I'm looking to myself to see how I'm performing. See, we should know His voice and follow Him. I, I was thinking about John chapter 10. Remember, we He says, My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. They will not follow Another. We need to be sheep who recognize the voice of our Lord. And when people come along and say things that's off the mark, we say, I don't recognize that voice. God, who has spoken fully and finally in His Son, is guarding us against those who speak otherwise. And we need to trust in Him and follow Him. Choose leaders you can follow The value of New Testament ecclesiology, the beauty of plurality as opposed to singularity in leadership, it seems to me, is evidenced and the responsibility as the corporate body for its own health, not only mine individually, but the spiritual health of our body is our responsibility, not just somebody up there whose job it is. Apostasy. Rooted out of the church. It's going to come, folks. It is going to come. Apostasy raises its ugly head in many forms, in many ways, but it's going to appear. We need to be people of the Word of God who are sensitive to the voice of the Master and say, that is not true. We need to be sensitive to whether something is Christ centered or not. And a lot of the milky stuff that's being peddled out there it is the health and wealth and positive thinking stuff that frankly, it, it, it's the kind of thing that indulges your flesh on the one hand, but it turns you from Christ on the other. It is not how great I am. It is how great He is. And we ought to be looking to Him. That's what Christ-centered preaching and Christ-centered life is about. That's why we have the Lord's Supper every week. We keep coming back to him. Uh, and I just say, I don't hope this doesn't apply to any of you, get out of the apostate church. If being under the teaching of false teachers actually makes one duller and duller, as I understand it to be said in late chapter 5, then then I, I would issue a word of warning to those people who stay in an apostate church saying, I'm going to do what I can to rid them of, of their error. In my opinion, that stuff just just kind of rubs off on you and it has a way of desensitizing you. If week after week you're hearing preaching that is not Christ-centered preaching, cross-centered preaching, then, my friends, it's making you dull. Get out and go where the Word of God is proclaimed. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, let me make sure I've, I've said how it is you get to heaven. It's by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He came to earth in human flesh so that he could experience our trials and our difficulties. He could manifest his perfection to us. And then he could die, the sinless one, taking on the sins that belong to us and the guilt and the punishment that belong to us. He is the one who makes the ultimate, who has made the ultimate atonement. He is the one who is our great high priest and mediator to whom we must flee in time of need. Father, we thank you for this text. Help us as we proceed in Hebrews to understand the message of this text. If there are things that I have said that are off the mark, if there are things that have been misleading or that have pointed men in the, uh, and women in the direction that would not be healthy. Help us to see that, to be honest about that. But in those things that are true, we pray that your spirit would bear witness. Help us to be people of the word who want to grow, who want the meat, and who follow those whose life has been characterized by a pursuit of your promises. In Jesus' name. Amen.